Lady Justice is made possible by subscribers to True Crime Australia. Subscribers get all eight episodes of the podcast before anyone else, ad-free, and bonus content such as galleries, videos, and our journalism. Go to ladyjusticepodcast.com.au for our range of subscription offers. And I guess what was always in the back of my mind was if we get this wrong, the implications are huge. It changes the very fabric of society. This is Lady Justice, an eight-part podcast about the smart, brave and inspiring women of our justice system. I'm Natalie O'Brien. And I'm Amelia Saw. There'd been six shootings, two were attempted murders, there were seven arson attacks, all attributed to biker gang activity. In this episode, Natalie O'Brien talks to the Chief Operating Officer of Home Affairs, Justine Saunders. Hey, my name was Australia and I quickly learned that wherever I went, my nameplate was Australia. So I certainly felt, felt the weight of that responsibility. Justine Saunders has often been the only woman in the room during her exceptional career. Rising from a detective in the Australian Federal Police to commanding joint counter-terrorism teams and being appointed the first female police advisor for Australia to the United Nations. She's also been the ACT Police Chief, the Deputy Commissioner of Border Force, the leader of the COVID-19 Border Measures Group, and now she's in Home Affairs. She has hunted down child sex predators, solved murders and worked to dismantle outlaw motorcycle gangs. Her work has taken her to some of the world's most troubled countries and she's had the security of the nation on her shoulders, protecting us from terrorists. And she admits it's the potential lone wolf extremist that flies under the radar that keeps her awake at night. I've decided sleeping's cheating, Natalie. We've got no, no time for sleeping anymore. I asked Justine what were some of the most memorable cases she's worked on in her long career. She opened up about one investigation which had a profound effect on her and also the victims she helped. Now, I when I, there's some specific cases, particularly in, in relation to sexual assaults on young children, which, you know, never leave you. And in fact, in some instances, there are some young children I dealt with at the time that I still hear from on a yearly basis and receive Christmas cards from because obviously an event such as that changes a child's life. So it was a real privilege to be able to support a young person through through a horrendous traumatic experience such as that of a sexual assault and assist them through the court process. So I mean there there are many cases like that I could I could reflect on. Um, but certainly this one in particular was um, two sisters had been the subject of a sexual assault by someone known to them, um, someone within their family. So extraordinarily traumatic, not just for the children and their family. Uh, very difficult process in terms of building trust with a young person who's been a victim of something so, so, so traumatic. And then of course, supporting them through at that time, which was a very difficult court process. We've come a long way in regards to dealing with sexual assault and child abuse and making the court experience less traumatic for victims. But at that time, it was very difficult um, to go through that process. And But having said that, very rewarding when you could get the right outcome in that particular instance that I'm reflecting on, you know, the, that person was was convicted of, of, of sexual assault. Um, that was certainly that was certainly significant for me in terms of 
um, as, a, as a young detective and the difference you could make in the life of another person, uh, particularly a young person who'd been severely traumatised. When Justine joined the police force, women were still mainly in support roles. She said the glass ceiling at that time was very low, but she busted right through it, starting with a murder case in which she unexpectedly revealed her interviewing skills. Actually putting your foot in the door of investigative work in policing was quite difficult and at that time the only real opportunity for women in the early 90s was really through, through the area of sexual assault and child abuse. It was one of those opportunities that existed because it was recognised that women were, I think there was a perception women you know, were nurturing, which is correct, that women were great in engaging with young children and victims of crime. So it was one of those, it was really the only segue that I had to, to explore what was you know, a fascinating world of, of being a detective. In an unexpected way, she got her opportunity. I was on an afternoon shift with my colleague and we were called to a house in, in the suburb of Canberra known as Waniassa and, and the resident of that house had been shot. Um, that resident was actually an international student from Hong Kong who was living with a family there and providing some tutoring support to the children in the family and had been shot in the stairwell and, and shortly thereafter died. Uh, and as a young detective, female in particular, we were often seen as providing support roles. You know, it was the male detectives, the detective sergeants that took the lead in these matters. And, um, and that's certainly what occurred in this instance. So whilst I was actively engaged in the response to that, and interestingly, the actual suspects in this particular case had actually returned to the scene. Um, and so we had, had quickly identified a number of suspects in the matter and within hours had had four young people and um, um, when I say young people, young adults in custody for what was then a murder uh, murder investigation. And I recall we'd worked throughout the night um, and a very experienced detective sergeant came in to lead the lead the interview as was the case and I was referred to as, you know, the, the corroborator, the person who took notes. Um, and so, in, in some ways, he sort of relaxed a bit there because I'm, I'm just I'm just the note taker. But but the but the sergeant actually I think had had a pretty late night, Natalie. And if you recall the culture of detectives back in the day, um, there was certainly a lot of burning the candle at both ends. And I think this sergeant had certainly done that. And and as a result, started this interview. And within a few minutes, I think uh, through either exhaustion, hangover, one or both, I'm not sure, um, said to me. Um, Justine, do you have any questions? Which took me by surprise. And and interesting when I reflect on that interview, that very next question I had was, well, yes, um, let's start at the beginning. And um, through that interview, um, gained some very insightful answers from that from that suspect, both a series of you know false denials and admissions, which subsequently did contribute to the successful prosecution of that individual and others for the murder of of the student who I recall fondly as um, Mr. Tin Lo. So I think through that experience, one I learnt one I learnt that I was capable of cutting it as along with my male colleagues, um, and that that just through hard work, being a good detective, you build credibility and trust. And I think that was a real segue for me to be confident about my skills and attributes that I actually could do this, stand on my own two feet and, and pursue my own career as a detective. Justine was the first woman to be appointed as Australia's police advisor to the United Nations, a big job which had the weight of the country on her shoulders. 
I made the leap to the United Nations and, and the role was that of Australia's police advisors, the United Nations, and I was the, someone had before me had established the post and so I was the first to really cement that position in the UN. Uh, the role was really is really very different to anything I'd done before, Natalie. I'd worked in operations as a as a police detective predominantly um, up until that point, but this role was was quite unique. And I think I still recall Natalie the briefing I had from my boss at the time, um, who said, "Justine, you're going over to the UN, and your job is to identify opportunities and influence." And I really didn't know what that meant. Uh, so I really had to find my way and and really the role in simple terms was around shaping the police contributions to UN missions. So I, I recall distinctly, uh, Natalie, jumping on a plane from New York, coming to Australia, actually flying to Sydney, then Alice Springs, then Darwin to East Timor to work through what the new the new UNMIT, the United Nations mission in Timor might look like um, post the murder attempts on the president and and prime minister at that time preparing for our next elections. What would that UN mission need to look like to ensure safety in the country over that over that coming period? So I was working with them to see how what those missions need to look like, how best police can contribute, and it was also, and I think the most rewarding part of it was also working working with partner agencies, member states within the UN, over 120 countries to actually build capacity in those countries that were war torn and coming out of conflict. So that's what we did. That's what I did. Um, but but I have to say it was um, an extraordinary opportunity, entirely overwhelming um, when I started because I went there as a commander in the AFP, um, but I, I quickly learned that that was no longer my identity in this role. I, I remember going to my very first meeting, Natalie, there was 120 member states sitting in a room working through, I think at that stage was the UN mission in in. Sudan, um, so the first, the largest peacekeeping mission, UNAMID, and I sat down and I wasn't Justine anymore. I wasn't, I wasn't a representative from the AFP. My name was Australia, and I quickly learned that wherever I went, my nameplate was Australia. So I certainly felt felt the weight of that responsibility and my engagement in that role. But I, I won't deny that the most difficult, you know, experience for anyone that's been to war torn countries is actually seeing those that are affected by, by conflict in the countries where the UN was, you know, establishing peace and security in those countries. I, I remember spending time in, in Darfur and going to an internally displaced camp um, over 100,000 people in that camp and there were people that had been born into that camp would no doubt raise families in that camp and, and die in that camp. That was their life and those that had the opportunity to leave an IDB camp were unlikely to live outside of conflict or poverty uh, and you know that's really difficult to acknowledge and recognise that um, whilst the UN plays an important role in establishing that peace and security um, that the the ability to implement enduring sustainable change is is incredibly difficult. What are some of the worst crimes you've seen? All crime types have an impact on society in different ways. But if I was to reflect on those that have the greatest impact and effect, you know, obviously what comes to mind is the time I had probably prior to going into the ACT policing that was as a commander running our joint counterterrorism teams and working with our partners in the region and building capability to combat the enduring risk of terrorism. 
and and I guess what was always in the back of my mind when in running in in representing Commonwealth's interest in those joint teams that we had with the states and territories in particular was if we get this wrong, the implications are huge. It changes the very fabric of society. And and I, and it was a refle- when I went into counterterrorism, what played in my mind is when I'd been in New York, in fact, there'd been, and I don't know if you recall it, we're sort of going back to, I don't know, it must have been sort of 2007, 2008, there'd been this explosion at Grand Central Station and it had led to huge plumes of smoke coming out of Grand Central Station. It was actually a gas explosion, but the response while we were living in New York to that event was the immediate reaction was this is a terrorist event and people literally ran for their lives, Natalie, and and left their belongings and literally ran. Um, It really shook the community in New York and it just highlighted to me that, you know, this was some seven years after September 11 and yet a traumatic event such as that or, you know, an incident, an unforeseen incident such as this was automatically soon to be a terrorist event and the impact on the community was huge. So that really played on my mind, um, certainly working in counterterrorism, knowing that any event that was to occur in this country would, would change the way we live, change the way we approach our lives in Australia, which, as we know, is, is very privileged. Were they the sorts of things that would keep you awake at night? Absolutely. Um, in fact, what, what woke me up at night is I was very confident in terms of law enforcement's criminal investigations, the quality quality detectives we had in all the joint counterterrorism teams. So my concern was not those investigations, which I had enormous confidence in. My concern was those individuals in the periphery, those that did not hadn't met the criminal threshold, um, which is why I've always felt very strongly about the importance of community engagement and responsibility for engaging with our youth and those on the path of radicalisation to ensure that we can we can direct them down a safer route that we actually have effective measures by which we can counter violent extremism in this country so it was that aspect that kept me awake at night um, because there were plenty that there were, I shouldn't say there were plenty you know there was many that we identified as being in the periphery as I've said and not having any powers by which we can undertake disruptive events and or investigate criminally um, and that certainly kept me awake at night along with the potential implications of getting it wrong. Stay with us. We'll be back after this short break. News doesn't have to be boring. The Brits have given Prince Harry a new nickname after yet another tell-all interview. Oh, God, is it the ginger winger? <laughs> <laughs> Let the team at news.com.au get you up to speed each day with their podcast from the newsroom. A couple were busted joining the Mile High Club. Well, I guess they can't fly virgin anymore. <laughs> Politics, sport, red carpets, royals. Get all the goss in just a few minutes. Follow from the newsroom wherever you get your podcast from. Justine found the most dangerous jobs are often close to home as the result of a domestic incident. Officers have to be prepared for everything and it's impossible to predict what might happen. But I guess one observation when I reflect is when you join an organisation, a law enforcement agency at the age I do, it's all you know. So you don't, you're not often reflecting on the danger of the work that you're doing. Um, in fact, I probably wouldn't have been stayed for the 30 plus years that I have in law enforcement if I overthought it too much Natalie to be honest but I think that when I reflect on all the various things I've done over the years both you know domestically and internationally clearly what was most dangerous is that time you spend in a uniform responding to the unknown 
in your community policing functions and I often think about the and often young people that we put in our blue uniform around the country that are put themselves in danger every day and and my when I reflect the where you're in most danger is going to those events where you really can't anticipate what is going to occur or in fact what you are going into and and I do recall one particular event and once again we're going back early in my career but Natalie there was a bit of a experiment they thought they might actually put two police women together in a police car it's something a bit novel it was recognition of diversity and thought that let's give this a go and I'm not sure if the intent was to set us up to fail or to succeed but nonetheless so I do recall this particular day um, two police women it was very rare that this was occurring so here we were in the police car and we were called to what was refer- reported as a domestic violence incident. A son had, an adult son had, uh, had assaulted his mother and we were both asked to attend. Um, the son was, as I said, an adult son. Um, he was mildly handicapped and physically assaulted his mother and she was seeking assistance to have him removed and, and placed somewhere safe somewhere safe for him and and for her and when we arrived the mother came and met us Natalie and she said he doesn't like women and so there we were two police women but of course we weren't going to seek assistance that was the last thing we were going to do knowing we were part of this experiment and this experiment wasn't going to fail because police women were trying to demonstrate police women were just as competent as our male colleagues so of course we um we engaged with with the son and he very quickly became violent and of course, we still weren't going to seek assistance because that would that would play into the hands of many who thought that you know police women didn't have a role to play other than in support roles. So we we endured what felt like hours, Natalie, this this physical scuffle with this man where we tried to handcuff him, and um, many don't know the challenges of handcuffing, particularly when one handcuff gets locked. But that's what occurred my colleague and I so we're trying to scuffle trying to unlock one of the handcuffs while placing it on him Um, and in the meanwhile this scuffle continued eventually a colleague realized where we were and noted that we hadn't called in any updates on what was happening so did attend and assisted us but um, which was appreciated but uh, you know certainly felt the the weight of that, the pressure, the pressure that came to bear with us two police from dealing with this, and we both went off and saw the chief medical officer after the event, and and they recorded over 50 bruises, bites, and injuries as a result of that event. So, you know, didn't certainly didn't anticipate going to that that particular event that that would be the outcome, and certainly highlighted to me the unpredictability of policing and the dangers that you're confronted every every day. One of the issues from her policing career that has stayed with her is the unfinished business of decimating outlaw motorcycle gangs. In terms of unsolved for me, I think one of one of the issues that unfortunately I'd left ACT before I had the opportunity to resolve for me satisfactorily, I think was the this the upsurge I saw in outlaw outlaw motorcycle gang activity in the ACT. So when I reflect on as a young constable, you know, some um, 30 odd years ago, it was obviously a very different environment to what I found when I returned as the chief police officer. And when I arrived, I, I saw that we'd seen an increase in in outlaw motorcycle gang 
um, groups, increase in membership, and then there was a correlation between that and increased violence and organised criminal activity that we're seeing in the ACT. So, and I, I don't say it's unsolved, but for me, still not resolved satisfactorily. So, what, what I saw in, in seeing this conflation of events, as I said, the increased presence, increased violence, increased criminal activity, um, what I saw critically important in dealing with what is a national issue is the importance of having harmonised laws around the country. So, um, I, was, I was very vocal on this issue um, and sought uh, you know, as, as best we could, a framework of preventative measures that aligned us with New South Wales in particular, knowing the ACT is, let's be honest, a bubble in this large jurisdiction, um, in, ensuring that there was some alignment there and pushed very hard um, and unfortunately, you know, wasn't successful. Some real challenges in the ACT in so far as obviously being a human rights jurisdiction and not supporting laws which e exceeded the the legislation that existed in the ACT at that time. And for me, whilst I was looking to balance the human rights um, of the broad community, uh, I still think there was more that could be done there. And, and when I reflect, and, and if you, to, I guess to give a bit of a sense of the nature of the risk. So when I arrived there for the first six months in 2018, there'd been six shootings, two were attempted murders, there were seven arson attacks, all attributed to biker gang activity. And my fear was not just the criminal activity, that in itself was a concern, but with the escalating violence, my fear was there would be innocent members of the Canberra community that would be impacted by that. And we certainly had some close calls where two incidents, two shootings where innocent families got caught up in the violence. And in one instance, a bullet from an alleged targeted shooting came within a metre of a sleeping neighbour. So I was dealing with that. That certainly, certainly did keep me awake at night because I, I really did feel that we we're going down a path where that would be inevitable. And um, the frustration I, I personally felt in terms of not having all the tools I needed to better protect the Australian community. And it is quite wide, wide-ranging crime, I think, from uh, the bikies, isn't it? It's um, as you say, there's street violence and murders, but um, it extends to other things, like criminal activities and drug running, and all sorts of different things. That's right. That's right. So, and I'm not suggesting the prevention tools or the anti-consorting laws was was the only solution. So we obviously did, based on as you said, the broad-ranging criminal activity they're involved in, did quite a lot in terms of firearms prohibition reforms, increase in financial crime investigation, proceeds of crimes, so hitting them in the back pocket where it was hurting, and having really targeted investigations. So, you know, we had some success, but still, for me, more to be done. Taking on roles in Border Force and then Home Affairs came with even greater responsibilities. As a young, as a young detective, young police officer, I never dreamed I would be the chief operating officer of a department like Home Affairs. But just shows you that that if you pursue opportunities and 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 there are always opportunities coming our way, just got to the door opens, you just need to step right through, don't you? But um, it's through the breadth of experience I had that sort of positioned me for this role. But I have to say, what's been really important, people stand back and go, well, it's a public service, but what are you doing as a public servant in this broad bureaucracy of the Commonwealth public service? But um, I have to be honest, what sort of drove me here was Home Affairs and its mission, which is to keep Australia safe. So for me, still very linked to what's what's motivated me for over 30 years and it has been about keeping the Australian community safe. So, you know, a real privilege to be where I am now. Uh, yeah, looking at the, the, the challenges we have in so far as border security, um, 
which is the narrow element of home affairs responsibility, but much more complex, Natalie, than I thought. When COVID hit, Justine's job took a turn into uncharted waters. So I've had responsibility for leading our response to COVID border measures internationally, so in terms of the international border, working across Commonwealth, working with states and territory partners as well as industry in regards to the range of measures that we've put in place to reduce the risk of COVID crossing our international border. Extraordinarily challenging, unprecedented, as we all, we've all been affected by COVID and uh, the challenges have been incredible. And by, by way of illustration, Natalie, I recall when when we first became, you know, alive to the impacts of COVID. I don't know if you recall where you were or what you were doing and when you thought, actually, this is going to have an implication here in Australia. We see so much go on globally, which doesn't affect us. But I think we've all been at that point where we've gone, this is actually going to have an impact for us as a community here, the extent of which, you know, wasn't clear. And, and I think for me, the point when the government, um, as on the back of health advice, said we need to close the border, that was pretty telling um, and enormous challenge. We'd never closed the international border in Australia's history, to the best of my knowledge, and we had 24 hours to do it. So an incredible challenge um, and not one that we could we could solve on our own. Obviously, whilst we were border force, we responsibility under immigration and customs laws. We don't run airports and we don't have powers over airlines. So it obviously meant that we needed to work hand and glove with our Commonwealth partners, including you know health, to give us guidance about how we're going to implement this in a in a safe way, as well as working with departments that had responsibility for airlines, working closely with airports, state, territory, police, etc., to implement that. So it's just an example of of the extraordinary challenges that um, Border Force and Home Affairs have had in this time. If you look at the aviation domain, um, you know, each jurisdiction, each airport is slightly different. So it was really important that we gave some clear guidance to our people on the ground, but let them get on with it. Let them actually work through with stakeholders on the ground how to best operationalise that. And they've continued to step up throughout throughout the COVID challenges of the last two years beyond closing the border to implementing a whole range of measures aimed at managing the flow of people, supporting the transport of goods across our border, making sure supply chains are open and that we reopen in a safe way. And we're well on our way to, to getting to a point where people can travel, um, you know, very freely across the international border. So an enormous, enormous effort in the last couple of years. And no, um, I've decided sleeping's cheating, Natalie. We've got no, no time for sleeping anymore. <laughs> We will be back to hear what happened next, right after this. Are you ready to get an inside look at crime from someone who has investigated some of Australia's worst crimes? It was like Aladdin's cave. The luminol found bloodied footprints and bloodied handprints on a wall. So it's just like a horror movie. Former homicide detective Gary Jubilant sits down with cops, crims, addicts, victims, small-time cheats and big-town lawyers as they tell their incredible stories. My house got raided. Next thing you know, I got bail refused. Next thing you know, I'm on a truck to Parkley Prison. Listen to I Catch Killers early and ad-free on Crimax Plus on Apple Podcasts today or wherever you get your podcasts. When I asked Justine about some of her biggest career challenges, she said it was trying to arrange adequate policing support for war-torn countries. 
So for me, the, the biggest challenge I found in working with the UN at that time, and I don't think it's changed, is that the demand for for police to support the the establishment of safety and security is huge. And those countries that can provide quality police to be on the ground to provide that safety and security and to build the capability of the local police often come from countries where they don't have surplus police available. Australia is a great example. So a great police on the ground is supporting those countries but don't have the capacity to support, whereas those countries that have the capacity often don't have the training and skills they need to go in and support those countries. So what I observed when I was working with the UN is that missions like, um, as I said, UNAMID, the position in Darfur, the mission in Darfur, 26,000 police and military required to support that mission. So where do you get those numbers from? And how do you make sure we've got the right skills? So what we were able to do, and I guess it highlighted to me in my time there that one person, that being me, could make a difference if you build collaborative relationships across the UN family, was we were able to connect those countries that had police in large numbers with those countries that had the skills but not the numbers and providing providing support to one another. So Australia actually established the first regional peacekeeping training centre um, at that time um, with a view to supporting Pacific regional partners that were supporting UN missions. So making sure they had the right skills and attributes to go to a UN mission and get the best outcome possible. So that was the sort of change we were able to implement. And I think in, when reflecting on Darfur, we had problems of those that were going to that mission did not have the basic skills required to perform the role, but because they needed police in numbers, there were some they lacked some of the rules. And we said, as a member state, that's not the solution. The solution is to build the capability of those police. So we went from in 12 months, I recall it was fabulous, went from where people weren't meeting the pre-deployment training requirements to a high standard. Um, they were like, say for example, I could have my figures could be a bit off, but so it was like 10% were meeting the requirements within 12 months because of these arrangements we we had established with you know mentor countries for want of a better term, that 90% were achieving the pre-deployment training requirements. So made a big difference in in um, just through those relationships within the UN. So really positive, but that was probably the biggest challenge is the the capacity and capability to support the needs of those war-torn countries. You have been listening to Justine Saunders. That was the final episode of Lady Justice. Thank you for listening. The podcast is written and hosted by Amelia Saw and myself, Natalie O'Brien, with production and sound design by Andrea Tees Evanson. Please search for Lady Justice. Subscribe or follow and leave a review if you like what you hear. Lady Justice is made possible by subscribers to True Crime Australia. Subscribers get all eight episodes of the podcast before anyone else, ad-free and bonus content such as galleries, videos and our journalism. Go to ladyjusticepodcast.com.au for our range of subscription offers.